0: Well, as you know from uh, the conference uh, program, <coughs> we are here now to have a panel discussion with um, Bo Lidlgaard, editor-in-chief from daily newspaper Politiken, and Cecilia Stockholm-Banke, senior researcher and head of research research unit at the Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the Danish Institute for International Studies and uh, been Biblical Historian journalist, and Author as well. I'm also a journalist and uh, I shall do my best to moderate this debate. And since we are already late, let's just jump into it and ask for the first presentation, which will be from you both
1: Yes. Can you hear me without a mic? No. 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 <laughs> so I need this. Uh, and I think I'll just do like this. this is better? No, no? <laughs> not really.
2: That's
1: <laughs> good. Yes. No, this is the equation. No, it's it's this better to do. is
2: better. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Okay. Um, well, there are three things that have, which which I think are the ones that that we as community today must try to understand in connection with um, what happened in September and October, um, seventy years ago, and. The questions relating to them are quite simple, but the answers are quite complicated. The questions relate to basically the three main actors uh, in the Holocaust as it played out throughout Europe: the perpetrators, the Nazis, as one main actor; those who were prosecuted, the um, the Jews as the other main actor and the surrounding societies as the third main actor and throughout Europe these three main actors the, with different variations in different countries all perform the same variation over the fa- same basic themes everywhere except in Denmark. And this is then my first assumption that one cannot explain the Danish exception without taking an interest in all three main actors. The Germans acted differently, those who were sought after, the Jews within Danish society acted differently, and so did the surrounding society. So it's not enough to point to one of these, it's the dynamic between them that is different Now, why didn't the Germans start much earlier in Denmark than they did? Why didn't they follow the pattern from the two countries that lent themselves to some degree of comparison? Norway and the Netherlands, Norway occupied the same day with very much the same scheme seen from Berlin and the Netherlands, of course, occupied um, a couple of weeks later. Why why do events in both Norway and the Netherlands compared to, 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 to that in Denmark, in regard to the Jews, why do events play out so fundamentally different? And the answer, of course, is that the Danish response to the German occupation was very different and the political, economic construction created in Denmark was very different. And we have been debating ever since, that is for more than 70 years, more precisely 73 years, the pro and cons of the policy of cooperation, at least normally terms. What did we give in, which concessions did we make, which are painful. They were painful then, they are still painful today. And what did we gain? But I think one of the things, without going into that debate, that is quite obvious is that one of the advantages of that policy was that it allowed the Danish politicians to very firmly reject the first small steps that in all other European countries under Nazi control began the persecution of the Jews, the stamp of the identity cards, the yellow star, and all the steps that follow. In every country, the debate about how these measures were introduced, the complicity of the surrounding society, the degree to which the local society cooperated, assisted, even ventured to push for these measures is even today, or as we we need we, we to this evening an issue of very painful debate, and I've sensed very, uh, very strongly when I've been presenting my book in in other countries in Europe, in the Netherlands, uh, in Norway, in, in Germany, how difficult this discussion is. But in my mind, there is no doubt that this very particular political construction in Denmark made the Germans postpone the first steps and that made the whole action happen much later and that was a very important factor in the way it eventually played out. But it was not the only explanation because the Danish resistance prior to the action, the political resistance to this particular concession played a role in the way even the Nazis in Berlin conceived of the mission in Denmark, and it made them hesitate in Denmark. Hesitate not only in terms of the timing, but also in terms of the scope and the effectiveness and the violence and terror with which this action against the Danish Jews were initiated and 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 executed. So this resistance in the Danish society, this rejection rather than resistance, rejection was a key determining factor. Now, it is equally true that the fact that the Danish uh, Jews, those who had to realize in the first uh, days after the warning reached them in late September 70 years ago, that their determination to actually go into hiding, to leave their homes without really knowing where to go, but to take a consequence to actually act upon the warning, that was another extremely important factor. And it is, to me, when I read the diaries of those who first hesitated, to realize that this was the time when they could not maintain the position that staying and behaving as normal citizens was the only and the best option, when that that position was no longer possible, that their determination to move and the trust they felt in their fellow countrymen was another extremely important factor, without which the ensuing escape would not have been possible. And that leads me then to the third factor, which is the overwhelming support of the civil society in Denmark. It was a country at this point in time without a government, without a free press, without an organized resistance. So, there was no one, there was no authorities to really set out the course or the vision on how to respond. So, the response that developed over the two weeks, two main weeks of the escape, was a response coming not from above, but from within society. It was a response to what most Danes felt was an injustice, an attack from their enemy on their society, an attack on their countrymen. And they responded in a patriotic way to, to help their countrymen and to resist the action of the Germans. And I think for many Danes, This was the time, these were the days when they realized for the first time that what had been occupying Denmark for three and a half years was not the Germany many Danes knew as one of the central countries of European civilization, it was not our neighbor Germany that was occupying Denmark for strategic reasons, this was an occupation from a Nazi regime of criminals that would turn against any civilian at their own discretion. Now, there are many buts and ifs and there are many details of this story that lends nuances to it. The price the fishermen took, those who were not saved, um, those Danes who did participate in the persecution, those who did not help and so on and so forth. And all these nuances are important part of the overall picture. But for me, and in particular on this day, the most important lesson is (coughs) that a civil society can be prepared to respond in a situation exactly the way we would all hope. That it was. Thank you.
0: That was 10 minutes sharp. I think so. Well done, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can,
3: can you do a little bit as well? Uh, uh, maybe I do it even shorter. I, I, should I stand up? Uh, is it better if I stand up? Yeah. 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 yeah, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um So I feel a little bit placed in between uh, the thing here, uh, also because there's been kind of a warming up to a a kind of heated debate uh, between uh, both and uh, bed. And so I decided, when preparing uh, uh, my intervention here, that I would kind of place myself above the whole thing and try and explain. What is it all about? What is, what are what are they disagreeing about? Uh, and and could I do this as a scholar, and as an objective uh, a scholar, and also a neutral person, uh, as somebody who, uh, uh, as somebody who actually has done quite a bit of research in Holocaust memory in Europe during the past uh, two de- decades. And so, this is kind of my intervention here and I'm gonna try and explain why these two guys disagree. (laughs) And I hope they they will find that okay. Because uh, the the title of this panel is The Ambivalence of Holocaust History. Uh, And actually, uh, uh, the original suggestion to Anders was The Ambivalence of Danish Holocaust History. Uh, And then I thought, okay, But the ambivalence of Holocaust history is actually not only uh, true for Denmark, it's for every European society. That dealing with the history of the Holocaust is not something particularly pleasant uh, for uh, European nation states. Uh, And uh, I think in a way, if you look at it in this way, you would see two different ways of approaching the history of the Second World War the history of uh, national socialism in Europe. And I I somehow take the liberty to uh, take these two guys and have them represent each a view, a take on history. Uh, uh, If you do uh, history of the Holocaust uh, from the uh, perspective of the victims, you're very much concerned uh, with uh, uh, how this crime could happen you're very much concerned with uh, how could it not have happened, who could have intervened to in, to prevent it, uh, and who has some somehow a responsibility, uh, maybe also a shared guilt uh, for this crime. Uh, and I think that kind of approaching uh, the history of the Holocaust is something that has come into Europe during the past two decades, where uh, this specific approach has influenced our take on national history during the Second World War. And on the one side, we have this perspective on, uh, on the history of the Holocaust from uh, a very human rights orientated uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, um, view on history where you want to uh, explain and describe the gross human rights violations that happened because of national socialism and because of uh, Nazi regime. And I, no wonder I see you a little bit as representing that view. And on the other hand, if you don't mind, and on the other hand, I see Bo as representing uh, the more classic uh, uh, um, historical view on national history, where well, the main thing is to describe uh, what happened through the perspective of each individual nation-state. So the main thing is to constitute and to to kind of contribute to this constituting a narrative of the nation-state, which is what you do, in a way, with your uh, book, and, and especially the latest one, Countrymen, you could say. And each of these two ways of approaching uh, the history of the Holocaust makes sense, in a way, from each of their perspectives. The thing is, uh, from my chair, that recently Holocaust studies has actually... Challenged in a way the uh, the national narratives not only in Denmark but in several European countries and I think not only think the the two following days we would have uh, uh, presentations from scholars from several Europe several uh, uh, countries around Europe who would actually address this ambivalence of Holocaust history so this is a debate that not only takes place in Denmark it is a debate that takes place in most European countries. And we have scholars here from Poland, we have Finland, Sweden, and my colleagues, they would kind of, I think, more or less, also address this ambivalence. So I only spoke for about five minutes, and I think that would be okay, because uh, we want to make it a little bit light. I can uh, take
0: your five.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I knew that. That's
0: right, five minutes
3: sharp. Okay, thanks.
4: Thank you. First of all,
0: something
4: to drink, and could it be whiskey?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Perhaps somebody could get some water for the panel, please. Please, my closest to your mouth. Because I, think it's necessary.
4: I just published this book. It's Been ten, ten, ten,
0: ten
4: I just published this book called My Father's Escape. Jewish faith in October 1943. Uh, It was a very tragic uh, escape. They had a terrible little rowboat and rowed to Sweden and it sank in the middle of the water. Three people drowned and my father almost drowned but survived. They came back to Denmark, unfortunately, with a Danish ship and Gestapo was on their heels again but they survived and Escaped again and came to Sweden, and uh, my father is still living uh, and kicking. And I'm sorry he isn't here today. He was busy with his iPad, so he
0: didn't want to come. Uh,
4: but it's a dramatic history of help, of Danish help to the Jews, and. Uh, my father and my mother and the old Jewish family here in Denmark are brought up with a great gratitude to the spontaneous Danish help to the Jews. I was brought up that way, I guess. You were brought up that way. Any other Jews in the collection here? Yes. We were all brought up with this good story, and I think that's good reason for, for it. I'm very grateful to the Danish help. It was spontaneous, it was heroic. it uh, saved me and saved my family. and uh, there's no reason, is that whiskey?
1: <laughs> Does't look like well, that way.
4: And I don't think there's any reason to doubt the goodwill of the Danes. It was very difficult to know what happened during the Second World War. Hitler and the strategy changed all the time. A lot of coincidences in the national countries were vital for what happened to the Jews. For a long time it seemed that the Italian Jews were making it, but in the last end a lot of them ended up in concentration camp and died. For a long time the Hungarian Jews seemed to make it, but in the last end, after German occupation, they were sent to Auschwitz and most of them died. In Denmark nobody knew what was the right things to do and what was the wrong. You can't just say that the corporation government of the Danes uh, was vital for saving the Jews. This is too simple and I think very shaky in its conclusions. It has been debated what was moral of the Danish government and civil servants after the politicians stepped down the 29th of August, there came what we call the Studio, what is that in English? The Studio? No, the
1: the Council of Permanent Secretaries. Yes,
4: here's a civil servant you can hear. (laughs) And, and they continued the cooperation policy that already started in the beginning. In the beginning after the occupation in 40, everybody, most people in Denmark thought that uh, German were going to conquer and have the victor and the new German Nazi empire would arise. and most Danes thought the same thing. after 43, the middle of forty-three it was quite clear for for many Danes and many Germans that this was not going to happen. And if you ask me what is the reason why uh, the escape in 143 was so successful, I would put myself in the line of former Jewish historians like, like Gunnar Paulsen, who debated that in the 90s, and uh, Tartani Bernstein, another Polish-Jewish uh, author and historian, that said that the main reason was that the very clever Nazi leaders in Denmark in forty three knew very well that the Germans were going to lose the war, and a way of getting through it with their own life was to make the escape uh, work, and the Jew action, the Nazis took uh, back, a failure. So that is my uh, guess of the main reason and not the cooperation government or uh, any other thing and then the spontaneous action by the Danes. When I have some problems uh, with Bo Ligo and many other Danish historians and their interpretation of what happened It is because it can very easily be seen as an apology for the corporation politicians and the civil servants that they helped uh, rescue the the Jews. It was their honor. It kind of of, uh, an apology for what happened. The thing is that uh, it's not wrong to see... uh, history that way. You can't say it's wrong. It has been debated was it morally wrong or right that we exported 10 to 14% of our agricultural products to the Nazi Germany. And it's difficult to say was it right or was it wrong, was it morally defensible or not. I'm not sure I'm the right one to answer. But it's Maybe not only a question of moral; it's only a question, also a question of perspective. Mm-hmm. And you can choose, and uh, I'm following the line of you. You can choose a narrow national interpretation. Most Danish historians have done that. And if you choose that line, it is understandable and logical to defend Erik Skavvinu, our foreign prime minister the cooperation politicians, they did their best to get Denmark through the uh, war. It's not the whole truth, because uh, many of them had Nazi-like sympathies and things like that, but they did what they could do to get Denmark through the war in the best possible way. So if you choose that narrow, I would say apologetic, uh, nationalistic way of defending a small state, egocentrical manner. I can partly agree with you, but if you choose a more international viewpoint, and the war against the Nazi was international, and Holocaust was international, then you can reach some other verdicts. And then the cooperation policy seems much more (coughs) devious. I already used 20 minutes? No, 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 you have still two more. Okay. So I I want to uh, make some points clear here uh, to make sure that you understand how serious the cooperation policy was and how tragic effects it had to Jews outside Denmark. Denmark had a kind of peace occupation. Germany didn't need those, that many troops or SS people here in Denmark. They could use them some other places to hunt Jews. And they did. That's one part of it. Another chapter in this tragic history I would mention is that we exported, as I said, 10-14% to 14% of central agricultural products like butter, bacon, and what else did they eat, fish, and things like that. In my viewpoint, and Danish historians have actually written about that, but they didn't look at the consequences. Did it prolong the war? Did it have the effect that Jews in camps and on death marches died in the last hours and days of the war because we supplied the Nazi with all those goods? I I would see a research on that. It hasn't come yet. And uh, one of our historians, that is not uh, part of the main three Danish historians, a guy called uh, Stein Andersen, wrote a book in 2005 called They Made Denmark Bigger. His viewpoint was that main firms in Denmark cooperated corrobor- with Nazi Germany, built uh, fabrics, uh, cement, uh, cement uh, concrete, concrete yeah, uh, factories. Uh, they built uh, U-boat uh, uh, facilities, and it helped the German uh, uh, pepe, 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 <laughs> the war effort. Uh, and Sten Anderson concluded, in one of uh, speaking of one of the firms, that they were actually a part of Holocaust. Uh, in their help to the Nazis. We were not just outside spectators. We were part of what happened. And then I... And I know I already used all my time and... Uh, but I wanted to use But me you, gave. now I, I have five did. minutes. No, 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 ben, Ben, you already had your quarter So, please,
0: final remarks.
4: So... Uh, I would say, as a conclusion, and there are many, uh, I gave you a little paper, did you see my paper under your uh, chairs? It's a reference to uh, uh, a reference to an article I wrote in 2006 in a Jewish historical magazine, and you can find it on the the article, and there I expand these argumentations. So, to conclude, I would say that I am very happy about the Danish help during the war. Nobody can say that the Danes didn't make a heroic effort to save the Jews. But you have to broaden up. You have to see Denmark in a broader international perspective. If you only take the national viewpoint, you simply uh, don't get the truth about this. And I'm sorry to get you this bad news. Nobody uh, likes bad news, uh, and uh, it is a bad news because everybody likes a good story in the European darkness. But part of the truth is that there's a darker side to this story, and I feel an obligation to tell it. And that's what I did. Thank you.
0: Well, we might be a small country but we have space enough for very different
3: opinions,
0: (laughs) which I like a lot. And now the time has come to discuss different views on this topic and the ambivalence of the Danish Holocaust history uh, within the panel. So, first I would like you both to comment on bit Presentation, which is, of course, in some way, an attack on the view you presented. Um, but then again, I also find strong similarities in your conclusions. So, what does your remarks to mm-hmm. And please put the mic close to your mouth.
5: Yes.
1: I think where where the three of us, very strongly agree. Is that in order to understand this history, one must look beyond the borders of Denmark and try to understand the experience within Denmark in the context of the wider European uh, 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 picture. And 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 when in doing so, I think that it is true, of course, that one can look upon sort of the whole thing at the same time and say everything we didn't do made us responsible for everything else that happened and in a very abstract way I guess one could argue that way but it also becomes <clears throat> uh, not very focused uh, and in my mind I think where where a more fertile ground for comparison uh, lies is to look upon the three countries maybe four countries that in many ways shared um, fate and also um, to the extent that the Nazis had a vision for post uh, Third Reich victory Europe and Europa uh, were were on the same same level of vision um, Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands and to some extent Sweden Of course, for those four countries, which before the war had similarities, firm democracies, well-established civil societies, well-established civil bureaucracies, administrations, um, the fate of these four countries were very different uh, during the war. Denmark had this policy of cooperation that we keep on discussing, Sweden entrained its neutrality and was never occupied. But followed, especially in the first three years of the war, a policy that has many similarities with what Denmark did extensive exports, deep concessions to Germany, strategic exports of raw materials, um, and a very, very rigid refugee policy. Norway, of course, very different uh, reaction to the occupation, fought, speeded, the government went to exile. Um, and the, the, the Norwegian government, like the Dutch a month later, experienced a, an immediate corruption of society from the top. The Nazis were simply injection, installing their own government, first their own officials, and later uh, the leader of the Dutch Nazi party, Kisling, and that meant that within months the entire top echelons of Norwegian society was dominated by Nazi officials that was true for the political level and it was equally true for the entire civil administration, a Nazi-led police was established and so on and so forth. And what we saw in Norway very similar to developments in the Netherlands where you had the same system of direct Nazi rule What you saw, what we saw, was a direct corruption of the civil administration and a deep ambiguity of how to respond to the increasing uh, demands from the occupying power. All those four countries maintained huge exports to the Third Reich. All of them exported strategic war materials, we mostly foodstuffs, as the Dutch, uh, the Norwegians, both foodstuffs, fish, and raw materials, the Swedes, uh, mostly iron ore So the compromises, or the, rather the demands and the dilemma, the moral ethical dilemmas that the German demands um, provoked in these four countries were very similar But the way we responded to them were very different because the cooperation, or some would say the collaboration, between the local community and the occupying power, um, the arbitration between the two took place at very different levels. Denmark, for better and worse, negotiated at the government level between the Germans and the Danish society that protected Danish society but of course made concessions politically responsible Norway and the Netherlands did not have that arbitrage at the government level but there the individual civil servants the individual policemen, the individual judges had to face the same thing. so to me the main difference in these four countries is the level at which these difficult at which we faced these moral and ethical dilemmas, I think that is the reason why in all of those four countries, the debate is very, as you put it, introvert. Mm -hmm. We all look upon ourselves and we say, oh, this is terrible. And we are very uh, reluctant to look at the others and say, um, what can we actually learn from their experience?
0: Okay, thank you, Paul. Bit, uh, yeah, I will give the um, uh, mic to you. Uh, Half now. an hour? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, but I would like you to elaborate on a point in your presentation, and you can, of course, also respond to what Paul just said. But you had this very interesting um, uh, point about the German leaders seeing the writing on the wall, um, and then because they wanted to more or less get off the hook um, when the war ended, they actually uh, let the rescue operation happen more or less, if I understand you correctly. Um, could you please elaborate a little more on that and tell us about uh, what makes you uh, come to this conclusion, what indicates that? And then of course you're also welcome to uh, to respond to Bo and Cecilia, you will have the word right after. Me, okay? Okay. okay. Thank you. The thing is that in. I think you have to use the.
4: In the middle of 1943, <coughs> the German leaders in Denmark knew where, very well how the war was going, badly for their part. They were very well educated, they were jurists, advocates, lawyers. Law trained some of the sharpest minds in uh, Germany. Werner Best, Rudolf Milner, uh, Panke, and the others. They knew very well what was going to happen and how they could get out of uh, that dilemma. By sabotaging uh, more or less the Jewish uh, uh, action. And let most of the Jews flee. Of course, there's a lot of question marks in that happening and and what happened, but they used this after the war. They got light uh, sentences. Uh, They were out of prison pretty fast. Werner Best used this. It used that uh, the Jew action was uh, a failure. So I think this is the main reason. And I also think that, uh, Will Bolson and others, I think that Dukvich also constructed and construed his diary, and uh, there are good reasons for thinking this, I think, and the latest, latest biography by Hans Kirchhoff is not critical enough on the person of Dukvich, in my viewpoint. Uh, you said, uh, if I may jump to another, you, you said though that uh, it was quite abstract uh, the things I've said, but let me give uh, just a few examples of the, the hard consequences for this uh, policy of the cooperation uh, politicians in Denmark. We know now that most of all Danish diplomats, in Europe didn't give help to uh, flying Jews in Europe. Uh, There's a letter from our ambassador in Berlin in 1942 saying to the foreign ministry where Hedges Venemsen was the director that they shouldn't fear that he was giving help to Jews because that would undermine the cooperation policy. So he didn't. And we know that other diplomats, Japanese, Portuguese, British, uh, did help in different ways uh, Jews. So, this cooperation policy really did have consequences for needy Jews around in Europe. Uh, That was one example. Another example I wanted to mention is the whole question of Theresienstadt. When Danish historians wrote about Theresienstadt, where 500 Danish Jews were uh, prisoners and uh, did come back alive uh, with the exception of uh, 50, it was said that it was the the intervention of uh, the uh, Danish corporation politicians that made these Danish Jews not being deported to Auschwitz. And that's true, of course. We know that. That's documented. But it was also a, a tragedy that they did not interest themselves for other countries, other Jews from other countries in Tabaschenstadt. Heinz Himmler used Tabaschenstadt in '44 to paint a, a beautiful picture of how the Nazi uh, treated the Jews. They invited an International Red Cross delegation to Theresienstadt in '44 with two Danish representatives, one from the National Red Cross, one from the Foreign Ministry. They came there, they didn't interest themselves for other Jews than the Danish Jews, they came back and wrote, rosy reports of how Jews were doing in Theresienstadt, and before and after, other Jews were sent to extermination in Auschwitz. And every international organization waited in '44 to know more about the Jewish situation, what was happening to the Jews, and the Danish representative didn't even bother to send any reports to these organizations. They only wrote their reports, and I'm finishing now just saying that here's a clear, or several clear examples that if you haven't got the broad international perspective on these questions, you get a very narrow picture, and you have the books from Danish historians writing how fantastic the help to the Jews' interventions that was. And that's simply not enough. We have to broaden it up, our perspective.
0: Thank you, Ben. Sit down and have another whiskey. Cecilia, <laughs> <laughs> um, before I give the word to you, I'd just like to ask if there are any questions from the audience, then feel free to raise a hand and I shall do my utmost to, to um, have your Questions to the panel. You can think about it, Cecilia. You, you, just minute. I'll get back to you then. You, you took the position as the in-between. Uh, now you have heard the two presentations and bits remarks also. Uh, both. Um, now, <laughs> what is your uh, analysis of what has been been said? Oh, are there are there interesting things, specifics you want to to, to comment on?
3: Um. Um. Does this? No, this doesn't work. This one. Yeah. Uh, I. 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 I mean, first of all, I. I think they, both Bo and uh, B, B, I mean, you were very kind to completely confirm my thesis. So thank you so much, gentlemen. You are, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I. I kind of. Um, I, I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a, ambivalent myself because to some extent I actually do agree with Bo. I like this very preserving uh, history of, of, that you are providing us and I think it's a very important uh, history uh, or story or narrative however you defined it for the Danish society as such. And I think this point that you make about uh, the important thing to to kind of put attention to is that the explanation for the rescue is that uh, Jews were considered part of the we. And that's one of your main points, right? Uh, And then you also did the point about what took action by that time was civil society. And that I completely agree with that since this is also a conference on how civil society responded to the Holocaust uh, uh, as such. But on the other hand, I'm a Holocaust historian, and I deal with the history of the Holocaust from an international perspective. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm placed at the Danish Institute for International Studies by this same kind of Holocaust memory imperative that Denmark should also look into its specific Holocaust history. And this imperative has some kind of moral uh, message, in a way. That we should put the history of October 43 into a broader international perspective. So I also do agree with what uh, Ben just said, and I think it's very important what he does. He continues very persistently to really kind of raise his flag and say, "Hey, this, this is this, that, other uh, a part of uh, parts, uh, other dimensions of this story." Which we need to include. We need to include the complexities. And I, several of my uh, colleagues here, I see uh, one of uh, uh, one who I admire very uh, uh, highly, Richard Brightman here, who is extremely good at including the complexities of Holocaust history, the ambivalences, the complexities. It's not black and white. It's extremely complex. And I think in that sense. I do agree here with a bent too. So, yeah, just to confirm that I'm an ambivalent. I agree with both of you, <laughs> which is the in-betweener.
0: Thank you to the in-betweener. We have questions from
5: the audience. Uh, the mic comes down. there. Uh, I think we're taught in college that one of the elements of German anti-Semitism was the nationalistic uh, notion, two notions of blood and soil and common heritage. And maybe the Germans viewed Jews as the other and not having a common blood and soil. Uh, Did Denmark feel that way about Jews? Were Jews the other or were were Jews viewed as merely Danish citizens of a slightly different religion?
3: Uh, that's a very good question. It depends on when uh, you ask uh, and, and uh, which dues. Uh, because if you look at the refugee policy during the 1930s, uh, those that fled Nazi Germany and came to Denmark, they were not considered part, or only a very small group were considered part of, of were included in, 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 in the Danish community or Danish society as such. But if you look at the, uh, during the war, and if you look at the rescue operation, there, there was no distinction between those that actually came during the 1930s as refugees and, and stayed and fled. Together with the so-called Viking Jews, and now I'm actually stealing a term f- term from Pundik over here. The, you, you launched the Viking the term uh, Viking Jews. Do you remember that yourself, Pundik? Habak? Mm-hmm. do you remember that? No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Uh, but I actually love that term, and I I use that. And the, so there was no distinction uh, in those that fled to Sweden in forty three, and there was no distinction either those that were being deported to uh, Terezinstadt. Part of them were also uh, refugees coming to Denmark in the 1930s. They got the same kind of assistance from the Danish state. Uh, So in that sense, they were included in the we by the time. So again, my 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 uh, question back to you would be: depends on when.
0: And complicated complicated as well. It's uh, it's of course
4: a very good question, and uh, I agree with you that uh, during the action in '43, there were no differences between uh, Danish citizens uh, of Jewish origins and foreign Jews coming from other countries. But there's also uh, a darker perspective to that because uh, from '35, when foreign Jews, German Jews came to Denmark they were treated very rigid. And Denmark was one of the countries, together with Sweden, that demanded Germany to stamp a J in the passports. And most of the Jews coming in the 30s and 40s was kicked out of Denmark with a very short permission to stay here. And we have a big debate in 2000. In my newspaper, uh, a splendid newspaper, where where we had a debate about the 21 German Jews that was kicked out uh, by the Danish authorities to Germany and died in concentration camps, and actually we got an excuse to the Jewish people from Prime Minister Anders Fogh Rasmussen uh, uh, in that. a case, so it was very important. It was an an Icelandic, a, a Icelandic Jewish historian that wrote about that. Uh, and after the war, after '45, it was still not sure to be a foreign stateless Jew in Denmark. A lot of them were still kicked out of Denmark. Actually, you can go up to the fifties, and there were still foreign Jews that were. Uh, evicted from Denmark. So uh, it's uh, also a mixture, also good deeds, but also dark sides. And I think, again, we have to tell both. Ooh. Thanks,
0: Ben. I have two more questions from the audience, but don't hesitate if uh, you have questions. Paul we'll wants to comment Oh, sorry. We'll, we'll,
1: we'll just, no, yes, sorry, it, 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 it's just 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 one remark, uh, perhaps uh, not adding to, to the answering of the question because I think uh, this has been said, but more a a reflection also upon the nature of the debate we are having here tonight, because obviously any historian will will agree with Cecilia, when she says that it's very important to look at the complexities. I mean, anything else would be foolish, frankly. But that is not the issue we discussed. Because obviously, if you go back in Danish history to the 1930s, and if you proceed up, as, as Ben just did, uh, to the aftermath of the war, and indeed every single decision during the war, you have all these difficult dilemmas, you have all these complexities and Bent is of course absolutely right that Denmark did very little to stop Nazism in Germany, it did very little to stop the Holocaust at the continent it did very little to save those who perished in the concentration camps, including in Charleston Denmark was not in the 30s going up against the Nazis and Denmark was not during the war taking upon itself an heroic role or even an active role in trying to stop the crime that was rolling over and destroying Europe. That is true. We were, as a society, and I take now very deliberately the the, what I actually do in my book, my book is very much written from below and up. It's very much the private citizen, the, the victims' history. But as you provoked me into speaking about the nation, we as a nation did very little, except trying to save Danish society and the Danes, and that entails all these complexities. But what I find so surprising is that since Lenny Yahill wrote a book about the rescue of the Danish Jews in 1966. That's 50 years ago. The debate in this country about this extremely interesting event <coughs> has almost been overshadowed by all the nuances. All the, but there were also, but there are people we did not save. There are things we did not do. There are. All that is absolutely correct. And very, very important aspects and dimensions have been added through research over the last 30, 40 years. I still believe that the key history of why it was possible to stop the crime from happening largely here. Not in Europe, with those who were in the country, regardless of whether they were uh, part of Danish society or refugees, the few that came in. That history is still extremely interesting and challenging today.
0: Thank you, Paul. Before taking in a question, I just like to go back to you, a bit, because when I listen to you and, and now to Paul, um, it occurs to me that you agree on lots of. Stuff regarding the time before the World War and also the aftermath of the World War. We as didn't, well we didn't during, do anything but, to start but, it. But, but now I'm talking about similarities and, and disagreements in, in uh, the positions from, from the two of you. And when when Bonau. Firm space that he agrees with you and talks about what the nation did or did not do. I would just like to hear your opinion on what defines a nation. Uh, what is the distinction between the, the government and the, and the people who also have uh, to some extent and when it comes to the rescue, a very uh, large extent um, something to say about what uh, reputation
4: and nation will have? Um, <laughs> it's a difficult question. Could I answer another? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that when, when, when I write about these things as in my book and talk about it and debate with Bo and others, of course we have different perspectives. I see it internationally, you see it more national? No no, 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 no I think so No, uh, you may think I, so, but I, I don't I look at it in, in uh, with Jewish glasses I see uh, Jews being murdered in Europe partly not only because of the Nazi uh, misdeeds but also because a lot of countries cooperated there were fascists around Europe that even took part in, in the murders and the plundering, and uh, there were countries that participated in economic cooperation that wasn't needed. I'm not saying the Danes should fight the 9th of April 1940, but I'm saying that they shouldn't have participated with that much eager in cooperation. And uh, that debate hasn't really reached Denmark. I've written about this for for 15 years, but it's sometimes quite often to get through uh, the universities here in Denmark. But it has happened uh, around in Europe. When France in the 80s got a really hard debate about the French authorities' cooperation with the Nazis of arresting and deporting Jews. It was actually American historians that wrote that history. Uh, They didn't get any medals uh, in France. Uh, In Poland, when the Polish uh, history was really uh, uncovered and it showed that uh, many Poles were cooperating with the Nazi of plundering Jews, both during the war and after the war, It was an American historian, a Jewish historian, called Jan Kroos. And uh, I sense the same here, that that when I look back who debated these things, it's uh, me and some other Jewish historians, that our focus was on the Jewish faith in Europe, not in Denmark, but in Europe. And we didn't see it that much in national terms. And that's maybe, I don't know if I answered anything you you asked me, but I think the differences It hardly goes back to that difference.
0: Thank you, Ben. And I'm not sure you answered my question, but you answered <laughs> another one. So um, I know, I know, I know. Okay. Um, now, the situation is that we have three questions from the audience, and I will invite all three in a row, and then I will ask the panel to answer or comment on the questions in your closing remarks. Because if we do it that way, and if we do it sharply, we can actually close at. Um, um, the program. So please, first question. I'm Richard Brightman
2: from American University. Uh, I've done some reading on Denmark during the Holocaust, but I don't consider myself an expert. So when I have three experts here like this, I I want to ask a couple of questions. Um, First, um, do the panelists agree or disagree on the wisdom or morality of the Danish government's policies during the occupation. Second question. Um, We know that many Danes uh, participated in the rescue of Danish Jews, the escape to Sweden, but the historians also know that there were a good number of Danes who collaborated with the Germans. How do the numbers Matchup of uh, the estimates of Danes who participated in rescue versus Danes who collaborated. Thank you. Thank you. And please hand over the mic to uh, Mr. Mesmecha, former Chief Rabbi of Copenhagen. Thank you. I feel that we are mixing two different points in a way that uh, distorts at least the second point. We are mixing Danish policy in general towards Germany with the rescue operation, which is something quite separate. Danish policy towards Germany in the 30s and from the 9th of April was dominated by the fact that Denmark was still suffering, rightly or wrongly, but they were still suffering from a defeat Denmark had in 1864, 1864 was was to the date in the 30s and 40s still very, very much alive and we were cowards, we were afraid of the Germans. The decision to cooperate with the occupation power on 9th of April 1940 was not taken on the 9th of April, it was taken throughout the 30s where we did not mobilize our army try to, to, to get stronger. We had nothing to fight with when it came to April 14 And uh, this uh, keeping a low profile towards the Germans, towards the Nazi regime, uh, I felt it very much uh, on my body because my father was one of the few that was speaking uh, loudly against Nazism in the 1930s in Denmark. Uh, and he was told off. Uh, by the authorities, and also by the Jewish community, by the way. This is one point. Another point is that when we came to 1943, those people that rose and protected us, suffering uh, or endangering their lives, they did not wonder about 1864, they did not think of any cold um, kind of tactics in uh, any way. They went out because they saw something which was not justice. Uh, if you look at it in an international way, I think we should uh, say that from the international experience, everybody who stood up in October '43 knew from the national, international experiences that that could cost them the, their lives. So there is an international perspective I would like to see. And may I just and, uh, shortly uh, add that uh, uh, mentioned the very unhappy also an IMU uh, visit of the Red Cross delegation consideration That uh, but he did not mention, I think it's fair to to mention this also, that the Danish Red Cross provided prisoners from Denmark, not only the Jewish, but prisoners from Denmark in the the German camps with food parcels. And I can tell you from uh, the fact that I had all the lists of what happened uh, in Theresienstadt from my predecessor, who was a prisoner in Theresienstadt, that 80% of the deaths uh, in Theresienstadt took place in the first five months before the food parcels came. So these food parcels really saved lives. And uh, uh, when we blame the Israel Cross for the bad things they do, I think we should also give them credit for the good things. Thank you, Ben. And the
0: last, last question over there. Please, where's the mice? Yes. Yes.
5: My name is Jan Kitsch and I'm another historian, and I'm very fascinated by the stories and the narrative we hear. My question is very simple. So how far can you go with trying to write history as a cause and effect? And how much is history actually a random sequence event, much more chaotic? And uh, I read an interesting book some years ago about uh, by, uh, American historian Hunter, but called eight Days in May when was the critical time when Dunkirk was unrolling, uh Churchill took power and they had a vote in the War Cabinet, they established the War Cabinet with five people and there was a vote three to two to continue the war. And so it could have parts could have been changed and it will have a completely different uh, history. So how much can you actually predict that's cause of effect and how much this uh, reality is just unfolding in a chaotic and random way and there uh, uh, many many uh, ways of looking at it and none of them can be really true. Thank you. As
0: you can see we have only five minutes according to
5: our schedule so
0: I have to ask for a few more minutes' patience if I know these guys right, and I think I do. Because now the time has come for you to make your final remarks and uh, comments on or answers to the questions um, made from the audience. Who wants to start? Who wants to finish? Ben? So I will can sh- start. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, very like that, very short
4: remarks to Richard Brighton. Please take the mic. <clears throat> very short remarks. I think that Denmark um, had difficulties uh, because of geographic uh, conditions. And they couldn't fight in 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 40, but they didn't have to cooperate it to the extent that they did. And uh, if every nation in Denmark in Europe had done as Denmark did, it would have been to the advantage of the Nazi even more than it was uh, to you, and Melcher. Of course, the packages and the food to the Jews and Danish Jews in Red Cross was vital. I'm not saying it was all bad. I'm stressing the good action. I'm stressing the good things Red Cross was doing. But remember that Heinrich Himmler in 44 tried to make separate uh, negotiation with uh, some of the allied countries. He needed a good picture of the Jewish situation. And he got it from the Danes, the Red Cross delegation. It was vital for him, and he got a propaganda victory. And you have, again, to see also the Theresienstadt situation in a broader context, that he used this propaganda victory to try to benefit from it, and get some kind of se- uh, uh, separate <coughs> peace negotiation uh, going. So uh, we always have to take both the positive and the negative aspect of these vital things into consideration. And to your question, it was rather th- philosophy. Uh, uh, I think that a lot that happened in the European country was kind of coincidences. A lot of uh, a certain moment that was a lucky pick, and it happened in in in, in Hungary and Italy. Was it luck? Was the national condition just so Jews could be saved or not? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of what happened in
0: Denmark was <laughs> sheer luck. Thank you, Bent. Cecilia. Um. Yeah.
3: yeah. He's, all the, Three pretty tough questions in a way um, Richard um the wisdom of the Danish government's cooperation with Nazi Germany, you asked whether we agreed uh, with this uh, that this was that there was a certain wisdom in this cooperation uh, am I understanding your question correctly yeah
0: I couldn't tell
3: whether we right. were
2: together or um, in disagreement about
3: <coughs> Right. Um, the pragmatic me and that's the historian in me, uh, can I actually can understand the the uh, the wisdom of the, the uh, cooperation on behalf of the Danish government and I say this on, on based on the uh, book I did on the refugee policy during the 1930s. Uh, I, I could actually eventually understand how the government uh, responded to this refugee crisis the way it did, uh, protecting the society, as you said. The moral we uh, has, you know, that's a, that's a different question here. Uh, and uh, the moral me is also the one that drives me when I write my my history books or when I write, write my yeah. articles. So uh, this is also why I'm so ambivalent, and I think you can recognize that ambivalence, both of you, that we have this. You can understand the pragmatism, but if you as a scholar is only driven by pragmatism and your message to, you know, to the next generation, whatever, is only based on pragmatism, then I don't think that history actually uh, serves us the way history so it was And that's an answer back to my sister's <laughs> <laughs> father-in-law, Jan. <laughs> uh, you are asking a very, very scientific question to a discipline, a scholarly discipline, an academic discipline, which is sometimes not that scientific. And I will say that his- history is extremely influenced By its own time, the time that you know, by the context we are writing history in. So the books that Bob is writing and Ben is writing, and sometimes I also write, they're very much influenced by by our time and by the questions that are extremely relevant for us today. For instance, if I may. Make a small commercial here an article I published not in politics and not in Berlin's but the newspaper I used to work at, namely show, I published a small article this past Saturday. What can we actually learn from October 43? What is the lesson today? when we have this crisis of Syria, a new wave of refugees, what is the message? What is it to teach us from, the, from October 43? And I would say that hmm, the most relevant lesson today of October 43 is that it's not states it's not the United Nations, it's not any uh, in uh, international community that actually makes sure to protect uh, and to feel this responsibility and to act upon this responsibility to protect civilians. It's actually civil society, it's human rights organizations, those are the ones that respond to the current crisis in Syria. So I think that is the main lesson and that's an answer back to you. Finally, you have a very tough question. The numbers that help Jews to escape to Sweden compared to the numbers that collaborated with uh, the Germans. Ah, We don't even have a number for how many helped Jews to escape. It's not calculated. Am I right, Brenda? Am I wrong? Because you know it was such a civil action, and and it was in a way not forgotten afterwards. But it was something that kind of disappeared from collective memory, if you could say, during the past the the, uh, the first two decades. Of those four years. Um, so that would be meant. Thanks,
0: I, I, really don't I know took more
3: time this time, but I was entitled <laughs> to. <laughs>
0: right. I really don't know why we had to go into the closing minutes before you guys got a mic that actually worked. <laughs> but never mind. Closing remarks,
1: Paul? I should be very brief. Um, on your first question, the moral aspect of the policy of cooperation. I think it is Matthew all right in a spoke book speaking about Czechoslovakia, who says that it's very hard to pass or judgment on people who have to pick bad options from a short menu of uh, make make difficult choices from a bad sorry, from from a short menu of bad options. Um, what Denmark did was to pursue an extremely pragmatic policy in the 30s and in the 40s. I do not agree that it was not based on value, because it was based on a very clear political objective to avoid Nazism and Communism, to take root within Danish society. And that was largely successful, and I believe a major accomplishment. Now, on the second question, the numbers, for the helpers part, I agree with Cecilia. we don't know the number because almost everyone that we know of were asked, helped. Those who did not help, or gave them in, or were part of the action as helpers to the Germans, we know pretty well. they were few and very active, and uh,
2: actually a few of the most active Gestapo people were part of the uh, originating from the borderlands on which we fought that terrible war in 1864. So it all went back to the
1: old border conflicts between Denmark and and Germany, going back a a long time. But the numbers are very big to very small. But you find everything, and a lot also depends on whether you consider a fisherman who asks a lot of money to make the passage a collaborator or a helper, or whether you turn the, the fisherman who asks less money one or the other. Now, uh, I don't think I have much to add to, 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 to what you said. Uh, um, it is from any point of view an extremely hard call how to judge Red Cross when it again chooses in existence to assist the Danish prisoners when tens of thousands of other prisoners are vanishing or perishing not only in Suresh but also of course being being sent on so the, this is in a way a microcosmos of the dilemma I mean how do you judge help to the few when so many are suffering that is basically um, also Ben's uh, dilemma now on your question I don't think there is an answer because the answer you ask to history I guess you can ask, to also the life of all of us, how much is just sheer coincidence? How did you meet your wife, Is it sheer coincidence? How did you live your life, your education, your, what you do? I guess we all like to think that there is some meaning to what we do. Now we do know that there is also a lot of coincidence, but if we don't trust that the decisions we take and the times when we say yes, or no does have an impact. Why do we brother? Mm. Thank you.